Welcome to the Good Life EDU podcast presented by the Nebraska ESU Coordinating Council. I'm your host, Andrew Easton. Thanks for joining us as we discuss the latest in digital learning across Nebraska and around the country. All right. I'd like to welcome everybody back to another episode of the Good Life EDU podcast. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, that does not sound like Andrew Easton. That sounds like someone else. I am not sitting in for Andrew Easton. I am sitting in with Andrew Easton for another podcast of the EDU life here in Nebraska, the United States, and actually the world. My name is Craig Lofquist. I'm the executive director of the Educational Service Unit Coordinating Council here in Nebraska, and I work with Andrew, and I am leading this podcast today because Andrew is going to be answering some of the questions that I have about his new book. His new book is entitled Empowered to Choose. And Andrew, are you ready? <laughs> I am ready. And I'm going to take a little bit of space uh, at the front of this to kind of explain the role reversal and to say, one, there was an idea around our 100th episode uh, that Craig had for us to have a conversation like this, uh, which we didn't really get back around to until this opportunity, which is to say that uh, the Future Ready Nebraska Conference is coming up this summer on June 12th and June 13th. And annually, we've had three speakers from that conference share out on the podcast. And so this is going to be installment one of three uh, from folks that are speaking there, which is myself. Uh, and so I actually get to wear my hat for some of the opportunities that I get to when I advocate for personalized learning and the Empowered to Choose work today on the podcast with Craig. And so, Craig, you're crushing it as uh, our host here. So I'm going to throw it back to you and assume the role of the guest and let you lead us for the rest of this thing. Well, thank you so much, Andrew. I just want to have a conversation with you. Now, when I first met you, I did not realize that you were working on a book. And that eventually came up to the course of conversation. I'd ask you, hey, what's going on this weekend? And you'd say, I'm working on my book. And you finished. And that is just such a huge accomplishment. And as you alluded to, I said, hey, why don't you let me interview you about your book because I, it, it's just such a huge accomplishment. I think a lot of people in life say, hey, one day I'm going to write a book, but it never really gets done. So I know you know your book inside and out. So I wanted to, I wanted to start with some questions that will get, it, it will let everybody know a little bit about you. Okay. So tell us, not everybody knows where you're from. So just tell us a, a, an intro of where you're really from and how you got here. Yeah, so I grew up in southern Illinois in a town of about 3,000 people, and I uh, just absolutely loved my my childhood. I am the fourth Andrew Easton in my family. Uh, my grandfather and father before me were teacher coaches themselves, uh, and they actually coached together for a season of life whenever I was really young, uh, and I got to hang out with them at the school and on the sidelines uh, and just grew up uh, admiring the work that they did and uh, the leadership that they exemplified, and it has it instilled in me from a very young age just a real appreciation for this profession, uh, the significance of it towards the betterment of others, and I've pursued that as a as a career and really as something that has brought a lot of purpose and fulfillment to my life really from that age. Fantastic! I'm going to allude to that when we get towards the end of this podcast, your lineage and how important that is. So, I'm going to ask you some questions that might make you go back in time a little bit. Uh, I want to ask you first, 
what was the worst experience you ever had as a student growing up? Uh, I had a really rough third grade, and then it kind of continued into four, five, six, really, because I felt like I was always, no one will be surprised by this, engaged and chatty and ready to let me uh, have a conversation about whatever we were doing. But it wasn't always that the experiences were set up for that to happen. Uh, and so I, again, was not one to like back talk or be malicious by any uh, regards, but I certainly found myself seated in the far corner of the room often. <laughs> so that was that was pretty much all of third grade. And then it just slowly, I think, was sort of um, corrected out of my behaviors over the course of time to where it wasn't an issue anymore, sixth grade on. Well, thank you. I'm going to flip that now. And I'm going to say, what was your best experience as a student? You know, it's funny, whenever I get a chance to go and advocate for the personalized learning workplaces, I consistently share with folks that I am not someone who believes that any one model of education is what we should lean into 100% of the time, all the time, every time. I think things get stale for teachers and for learners alike. And so to answer that question, or at least the reason I give that context would be to say, I think back to my own K-12 experience and my favorite teacher in high school was incredibly strict, was incredibly detailed and had expectations that were really high, but everybody was doing the same thing that they had done for years in her class. Uh, and she knew what she was looking for and held us to those standards. And Loved that class as much. Uh, that was an English class that I took. Uh, as much as I also appreciated a, a drafting class where you really got to go at your own pace and create whatever you wanted. And if you got done early, you could take on other additional tasks that you could collaborate with the teacher on and select. And that disparity between those two examples in terms of how student-centered or student-driven it is continues to inform how I think about education today, because I think learners need all of it. I want my own children, I say all the time, to be able to learn in a lecture hall, to learn from podcasts, uh, to learn from inquiry model, and at the same time, too, to be able to drive their own work. And um, that's the part of the pie that I advocate for and hope to slightly increase because uh, I think it's necessary given the context today and also the future uh, for today's learners. Andrew, I'm fascinated by the responses, and I really mean that because I try to envision you as a young person, and I have trouble envisioning you as a handful. I can assure you I was a handful, and I didn't outgrow it um, by the sixth grade. But one of the reasons I asked you that question is your book has anecdotes sprinkled throughout it, and a reader will tend to go back in time and see things through their own eyes. And I was absolutely fascinated by the examples that you used as you walk through the chapters of your book. They were very powerful. And I think we all had bad experiences. We had good experiences. And not only do we do that as young people, but also as educators. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you this question. What was your worst experience as a teacher? Worst experience as a teacher? Is it bad that I'm sort of going through the Rolodex of things? Because no. <laughs> I think any good teacher... Maybe you like, never had one. No, 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 no. Uh, Rolodex of options of which story to tell at this time. And I think that's it. I, As someone who likes to be reflective often on life or when I was in the classroom about my profession, I always focus probably too much on the things I wish I would have done a little bit better or that would have gone differently. Uh, and so I'll pick one maybe that's a little tongue in cheek and say there was once a time when I had my back window open and a cat jumped up and into the window and into the classroom. <laughs> and 
that made for uh, quite a stir as this wild cat tried to find its way anywhere but to find itself amongst the 30 students that are in the class. That um, is funny. They don't teach that in graduate school. Yeah, you don't really get put in that as a simulator. Um, but I would say there was also a time when I was first getting started with this work with personalized learning that I had a vision for what I wanted to do, but I had never really taught in that manner before. Uh, and so the onboarding for me without an example, and without any prior history uh, was just a lot. And so I had spent a considerable amount of time ahead of a, a at that time, uh, winter break, thinking about what I wanted to do. And then once I knew what I need, wanted to accomplish, I set out to doing that over the time frame that that winter break gave me to work on some things outside of school. Uh, and I was passionate about it. I loved it. It was fun for me as much as sometimes work that we take home can be a challenge or frustrating. This was a labor of love that I was really excited to get back in the classroom and try out. And when I got back to school a day before students arrived at the end of winter break, uh, I found out that my rosters had changed and that there had actually been a counseling error uh, and that they had overbooked each one of my sections for this class that I was going to try to allow students to have complete control over the pace of what they were doing for an eight week span of time. Uh, and so there was not even enough desks for students to sit in. And so they piled in and sat on the floor and we were just on top of each other. And I left at that point feeling dejected, like here I'd spent all this time, effort and energy working on crafting a learning experience that I was excited to launch and see where it would go, uh, only to find out that it just wasn't going to work in our space. And I continuously get back to thinking about Robin Schrack, who's a librarian to this day at the school that I was at at that time. Uh, I went down and vented with her, right? Like any good educator does. You, you get really frustrated and you go, all right, I'm just going to go get this out of my system. And she was so kind to sit and listen. And then seeing how passionate I was about it said to me, Andrew, why don't you just bring them down here? And I was like, what are you talking about? And she goes, why don't you bring them to the library? And I was like, wait, so I can like check out, not a book, but check out the library, the entire space. And she said, yeah, uh, for a quarter. Uh, and so we moved every one of my sections reported to the library space instead of the classroom. Uh, and that was really the advent of 14 years worth of work that otherwise I probably would have squashed or found a much lesser version to implement had it not been for Robin helping me think differently about uh, that space and, and also what that space made room literally for uh, in terms of the lessons I could glean as students had a flexible learning environment to leverage. That is fascinating how a conversation like that can have such an impact. Um, so what was your best experience as a teacher? You know, I think maybe it's cliche to say that uh, every time that light bulb goes on for a student, you know, that that is a, a best moment. Uh, anytime that you see the students understanding what they're getting out of that time, whether it's knowledge or skills or understanding the value of collaboration or, you know, as a former English teacher, pressing up against just a really weighty idea uh, and having it strike them in, in some way that's profound. You know, all of those uh, things are what we show up for uh, each and every day. And some of my favorite experiences would include not only some of the personalized pieces, but even some of the Socratic seminars where students would just, without any teacher involvement, delve into a topic and a conversation that was as rich as anything that you could come across. And um, I, it takes a while to get students there. And that's a part of where my book goes to, but it is really inspiring when that happens. Okay. So when I picked up your book, uh, I started reading it one night and 
I'm going to end with the very beginning. So I'm going to jump into chapter one and I'm going to read this because it really grabbed my attention. Uh, and, and this is what you wrote. You wrote, back then my teaching assignment included four sections of senior English. And I can still remember watching my first group of students graduate. One by one, they took the stage to receive their diplomas. And as I sat there watching, I was hit with an overwhelming sense of guilt that I had somehow let them down. And what I really appreciated about that was your honesty. And it showed that you really cared about learning and that these young people are going to go out into life and you want to make sure that they're prepared as possible. That's what I got from it. But I'm going to let you explain a little bit about that. And that kind of sets you on this journey. That's that's the way I, my conception of it. And I'll, I'll let you respond to that. Yes, that would have been at the end of my first year of teaching, actually. And I can still remember that moment pretty vividly. I had certainly navigated the first year and taught the content I was being expected to teach. And, and I think did a really solid job along the way and hit some high notes that I would aspire to, you know, whether it was year one or year 15. But uh, when I think back to what I appreciated most about my dad and my grandpa and what people said about their experience in either being coached or in their class and taught by them, what we do in education is is part content, but also predominantly being able to help usher kids into adulthood in ways that that encompasses knowledge, but also character and skill set and things that are going to feed them uh, long after the time that we have the influence uh, that, that we have in that brief window when we get to know them. And I wanted to be able to lean into that. I, my disappointment in that moment came from the fact that I felt like there were skills that I would want each of them to have that I wasn't sure that they had graduated with. And how could we focus on doing that better moving forward? What was my aim? And so at the time, and it's kind of funny because I, I do think it was like an Alta Vista search or like a Yahoo search. So uh, if that sort of dates when this would have been, but I I looked into what are the you know top 10 skills that employers are looking for from new hires at this moment? Because I needed something. I wanted uh, it to be beyond just my perspective that I was going to set these aims and uh, it produced this list of 10 characteristics that I, I thought were fantastic. And I thought some of those we'd addressed really well. And I thought some of those could be uh, aspirations for the next year. And so start of year two, I just led with that, you know, instead of doing icebreakers and some of those things to begin the year. And, and of course, we got to know each other's names, et cetera. But it was, hey, here's this list of 10 things. Hold us, me and your classmates accountable to these 10 things being a part of what we do each and every day. And if there's a moment where we're not doing one of these things, call me out on it. And then let's go ahead and make sure that we like refocus our efforts around that. Because if you want to ask, as we're reading Shakespeare, when am I ever going to use this? I want to point to this list and go, we're doing this right now too. <laughs> so that you can always leverage in a future context. And I really was all, yeah, just grateful for the opportunity to lean into that, that first year. And then we did little checks every so often with students on, Hey, how are we doing to give them the opportunity to not only reflect, but then steer where we were going. And then uh, flexibility just tanked in terms of <laughs> that effort, uh, as because that was one of the 10 on that list. The survey, just time and time again, that was the least of those 10 until a student said to me, 
Yeah, Mr. Easton, I don't even know why I keep putting this on the list because like we're in school. There's no flexibility in school. We don't do that here. Uh, and I was, first of all, frustrated. That comment rubbed me the wrong way. But when I calmed down enough, I was like, okay, she might be right. She's probably right. And so how can we go about designing something that would add that flexibility, which was what triggered me to try to design the thing I described a moment ago, where they could have control of the pace of what they were doing for the better part of eight weeks? Well, I want to talk a little bit about the process of personalized learning that you have that I think is so well laid out and, again, has some anecdotes sprinkled in there. So you give some of the techniques, the process, and then you talk about it from a student's point of view. But this is something that you had posted in your room. You're an English teacher, correct? Yep. And this is a quote from George Bernard Shaw. Life isn't about finding yourself. Life is about creating yourself. And I, I want to use that uh, moving into the book because when you talk about finding each person's strength or uh, how to personalize their learning, they're actually being creative, getting out of that lack of flexibility that you were kind of talking about just a, a minute ago. So the process, it starts with uh, choice and topic and the involvement of the student. I'll, I'll let you talk a little bit about that. But I also wanted to mention one of the things that you you have in your book is about two teachers that teach the same subject and do so in such a different way in what they learned. So can you pick it up from there in the choice and topic? Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to try to tie a number of things together here through that then and to get back to it and say, just because I started with eight week long stints of time where students have control of what they're doing, does that mean I advocate for that? <laughs> what I actually did was fail forward uh, from that point on. And like I said, it took about 14 years worth of lessons, I guess, and collaborations is really where I would eventually go with it as students input certainly started to craft uh, the steps that would follow thereafter. Uh, yeah, led me to think about this work a little bit differently. And I, I certainly would be remiss not to give uh, a shout out to the Institute for Personalized Learning and specifically Dr. Jim Rickabaugh for just helping me to think about the aims of what personalization could mean and could be. Uh, I didn't even come across Dr. Rickabaugh until four or five years into my own efforts. And then I was like, oh, that sounds a lot like what I'm trying to get done. It only enhanced the work as uh, mentors and new ideas always do. But shout out to Jim for sure. He was instrumental in that. And for me, especially as I've gotten into a role where now for at least five or six years, uh, I've been working with teachers and school systems on implementing uh, this effort uh, as a way to practically go about personalized learning. What I believe is that the school staff, in terms of the teachers, want to be united around a common goal, but also want to have the flexibility to be able to pursue professional development in an avenue that makes sense to the work that they're doing at that time, what seems approachable, and to be supported, as I love our NDEC team talks about, and to be supported along the way once exposed to those new ideas. And I'm really excited for uh, any opportunity I have to promote this work because I, that's been an aim of it, is to say, how can we create an onboarding spot for any and everyone? Uh, and so I've had so much fun supporting kindergarten teachers in this work and sixth grade math teachers and welding teachers at the high school and swimming and strength and conditioning and pottery eight. And it, it doesn't, these principles can be played out in a myriad of contexts. And it's just about trying to find where and what you're doing 
provides more opportunities for learners to be not only at the center, but then be the driver of what's going on. Uh, and so to answer your question, I have to kind of make that subtle distinction and say that I've been there where, and I think teachers can be there uh, quite often, is you say, okay, I'm going to go out of my comfort zone. I'm going to actually let students be at the center of this learning experience. And you give them the opportunity and about 20% of them just thrive, right? They just run with it. They do amazing things, uh, create examples that you'd be proud to show the principal. <laughs> but then the other 80%, what are we doing? Hands go up, heads go down conversations start taking place and students go, I, I don't really know what to do. Can you go back to doing it for me? And that's the preference of what students sometimes ask of us because it is, it's easier than being responsible for it, especially if you don't know how. And so what I advocate for is saying, how do we intentionally scaffold? And so you said strengths is kind of being one, but how do we spend some time to teach students maybe as a whole class, right? What are your strengths if we had different avenues for doing this particular thing? What are uh, your preferences? Um, and so if you have two strengths, for example, pick which one suits you on a given day. Is there any way to leverage your interests in this? Uh, and so we'll bring that in sometimes. And then there are also times too where students need to make a decision based upon their needs, right? And I just kind of use the basketball reference all the time and say, uh, great that you can dribble right-handed. You got to go left sometimes. <laughs> so uh, with that, then strengths, preferences, interests, and needs, students can put their own, ready for it, spin <laughs> on what they're doing in the classroom. And that is such a different conversation and a point to a metacognitive experience when a learner can say, I chose this option. I made this decision based upon, and then they speak to one of those rather than because my friend did it, because it seemed like the easiest option, because uh, I'd done this before and it just seemed incredibly approachable. And so I need to kind of bring both of those pieces together and tie a bow on it and say, educators need to be able to begin in a place that makes sense to them and, and feels like something they can confidently take a risk with for the betterment of students. And a way to do that is to simultaneously ask that they help scaffold for students how to make those decisions so that when that moment of opportunity presents itself where the students can choose from multiple options, both the teacher and the student feel better about the uncomfortable rub that is that moment, right? <laughs> like where you're you're kind of exposed and in a space that you're not comfortable with because you've not been there before, but you believe can teach you something to continue to grow. Uh, uh, creatively, right? So I'm going to bring that piece Life in. is about creating yourself. There it is. You create yourself in those moments. So as I read your book and I went through this process, I kept going back to those kids that would eventually walk across that stage. And what I thought, as, as I worked my way through your book, I would keep coming back to that thought in my mind, thinking they're going to walk across the stage with a level of confidence because of they've been taught not what to learn, but how to learn. Right. And I love the idea too of risk history, right? Do you have a rich risk history or have you really just been able to sit there and play the game? Because when you have found the confidence that comes from navigating uncomfortable spaces, that transcends the experience and really helps lead to a future that's going to ask us to be creative and to be innovators. Technology's moving at such a pace that to be the sole source of knowledge is not necessarily really what our aspiration should be, right? That stuff's going to exist outside of ourselves. Uh, so how do we figure out how to do unique and challenging things with that? 
Fantastic. Um, I want to stop here just for a sec. I want to talk about your website. I'll talk about it again at the end of the podcast, andrewdeaston.com. There are materials and information on your on your website. Do you want to expand on what I've just shared? Yeah, it's something that I have tried to contribute to and keep as a place where people can reach out and contact. Uh, I'm not someone, I'll say this through work, through our Nebraska ESUCC, I love doing the social media piece, but I certainly on a personal level or in the support of my personalized learning efforts, do not enter those spaces as often. So if people want to connect, they certainly can through social media or the website. But uh, I'd also encourage folks to check out this podcast. It's kind of fun to be able to bounce between both worlds. So, Well, it, it, you know, let me just take a little tangential twist here. What's it like to be interviewed instead of doing the interviewing? <laughs> I've been in this seat a couple of different times where I'm the person being interviewed. And I found very early on that I certainly have to be cognizant of that because otherwise I'm so prone to ask questions predominantly. It's a good change of pace. And you're doing a great job, Craig. I'm, I'm worried that you're going to end up taking over the rest of the episodes here after this. Uh, yeah. yeah. Just... yeah that, that's going to happen. <laughs> well, you know, back to your back to the tools that are on your website, there are about seven areas that offer choice, empower to choose, uh, choice in topic, choice in instructional delivery, choice in product. I won't go through all of them, but they are there. Uh, you lay it out. So I think it's easy to follow. But like you said, you I think you probably have to fail forward if it's if it's new for you. But I think that's well, I know we all know that's how you get better. Do you want to expound on that at all? Yeah, I would. And just say that I'm a big believer in Simon Sinek's golden circle, which speaks to the why you do the work, how you do the work, and then what it looks like to do that work and that you should be grounded in the why. And so when I share uh, this person as learning conversation with folks, I always start there. The how is consistent across all eight, as I've now even kind of added some more things since the book to how to think about that. But we'll go seven because that's what the book says. Those different areas where personalized learning is possible, uh, the thinking is the same. The how is the same. But what it looks like can take place in different areas of your instruction, right? So as you said there, is it um, that you're going to have choice in your topic or you're going to have choice in your instruction, You know, choice in the strategies that you use, product, communication, pace, learning space? And that that last step before you kind of get to the what, uh, and that's the place where you, it's essentially the classroom practitioner is the one who's deciding where and then what that looks like in their own context. And it's been fun because, you know, you might say to a, a math teacher looks at that list and goes, no way for topic. Like there's just no, it's not possible. And that I uh, could empathize with that, right? There might be a scenario where that's true, that it, you could make that work, but that might not fit with your discipline. Or I should say, even if you're an elementary teacher and you're teaching math, but you know what? It might make sense to do that in English or in reading time. <laughs> and so it's nice to have that kind of flexibility where you can ask people to kind of start where it makes sense to them. And what I've found as I've supported, there's a district that I'm working with now, even that I'm in my fourth year, I think, <laughs> supporting them through multiple cohort groups, et cetera, is to watch how over time those eight offer an opportunity for teachers to think about the work they do in different ways. Because sometimes when you think about things like options or choice, it tends to be, well, I know what that looks like. It looks like a choice board. I know what that looks like. It looks like letting students pick what they want to create or what they want to read. But we don't think about the full breadth of what's possible. So that eight kind of wakes us up to everything that could potentially be there. And then from there, uh, as teachers make their selection where they want to go and they start to implement that uh, routinely, 
I found that kind of falls away and just becomes a lens through which people see instructional design moving forward. And that's when it gets really fun. Awesome. I teach some courses for a college and I found myself thinking this would be a powerful book for teachers that are that are going through school uh, to learn about how to really benefit students instead of stand and lecture. Now, you, when we first started this conversation, you said there's a time and place for everything, but uh, this is really powerful. And I think for pre-service teachers, um, this would be something that would really benefit them at the start of their career. Well, I agree because it, it would just lead to them starting off in a place where they see choice differently. And it's funny, actually, it was, I, I really appreciate Matt Miller. He's been on our podcast a number of times. And he has one with Holly Clark on blended learning, where actually they just did one recently on the illusion of choice is what it was titled. Uh, and so much of that resonated with me because I, I do think, and I'll get back to what we were talking about before, with the best of intentions, we'll offer students a choice board to determine what they want to, let's just say, create for a specific demonstration of their learning. And with good intentions, we'll put 13 options down <laughs> and or, or more, uh, and that tends to overwhelm students. And it doesn't necessarily mean that any one of those 13 is something that they might actually own uh, and that might land with them well. Uh, but what we're trying to do as educators is say, well, here's all the things we can possibly think of. And so here's all the options that you ha you can have instead of operating from a place of how do we teach them to know what content needs to be in there? What do you need to demonstrate? Right. And that could be driven by standards, but also a number of other things that you can kind of set forth with your students. But then giving them the space to bring that in. I mean, one of my favorite examples that I have from a student of mine was he created an entire level in Mario Maker of a video game that embodied everything that we were talking about. And then he narrated it and he dropped in all of these uh, pieces of text over the screen. And I would never have made Mario Maker a choice. Like that would never have been an option on a board. Uh, and it's just fun to see students go, wait, I can take the thing that I'm good at, the thing that I love, the thing that I want to go home and spend hours on <laughs> and pour what I'm doing in class through making those connections, pour myself into that effort for something for school. Let, let me ask you, uh, I'm going to, uh, move on a little bit towards the end of the book. I have five copies of your book on my desk and I am going to give out my email address in the first five emails that I receive. I'm going to send out a free copy of, of your book. And my email is K L O F like Fred Q U I S T at esucc.org. So klofquist at esucc.org. First five, get a free copy of this book. I don't think this, I know this, this is work that matters. I know that this is work that matters. It benefits young people. I also think it benefits the teaching profession. So I'm going to uh, get to the end of your book here and I'm going to read another quote that you have. As time has gone on and I have had opportunities to share about personalized practices with others, I still see my former students' faces in my mind as I recall specific conversations that led to the next practice, the next revision, the next step forward with personalized learning. No doubt the work of an educator is always personal, but what I've come to realize is that by first teaching and then trusting students to lead, they feel recognized and responsible in a way that brings meaning and confidence to
to all they do. Wow. There's, there's a wow there. What a legacy you're going to leave with this book and the, the work that you do, Andrew. Um, I can tell you when I picked up that book, I didn't really know what to expect, but it grabbed me. And, and I said earlier on in this conversation, I was going to end with the beginning. You have uh, something that your dad said to you. And I'm not going to say it. You got to get the book. But man, I thought about sports and I thought about education and I thought, holy moly, that is so true. And you'll find that at the very beginning of the book. Um, I also want to end with this. I asked, you know, to tell you a little bit about yourself. It's really impossible to distill a person down to one word. And I can't do that with you, Andrew. Um, but one word that describes you is reticent. You are not braggadocious. You are quiet in your accomplishments you do what is right. You always help others. Uh, you're the picture of honor and integrity. And and I'm just lucky that I get the uh, opportunity to work with you. And I want others to have that opportunity to work with you because there is just no question in my mind that they are going to benefit. And I know that many already have. And uh, the people that you interact with, uh, you create wonderful relationships that last a lifetime and and continue to do work that matters. So I want you to know that your dad and your grandfather are looking down and they're very, very proud of you. So way to go, buddy. Way to go. Oh, um, it means a lot, Craig. You know, you know my story and I, I can probably save it for another day for others, but I don't take any day for granted. Uh, I don't take any opportunity for granted. And I recognize all it goes into, I mean, uh, I think about so many of our leaders, so I'll just say our ESU network statewide, uh, and how much time, effort, energy, learning has gone into them becoming the people that they are that can advocate in those spaces. <laughs> I just have nothing but the utmost respect uh, and appreciation for folks that are out there fighting a good fight. And so I, we're all in this effort together. It's about the collective. <laughs> And so thanks. I, I certainly want to say uh, before we bring things to a close, it's been an absolute joy to get to work for you uh, and to get to know you both as a colleague as an, and as a friend. And the fact that you not only gave me this opportunity to be in this role, but then uh, when I was still remote and <laughs> hadn't even stepped in the office, I was like, hey, let's start this this podcast thing. One of the things that Craig's just uh, continually been great about is just given space and letting us, any of us that work at the CC follow our intuition and and what we hope is in the best interest of things and, and to be an active part of it, right? So it's not just saying, hey, go do your thing. Craig's emceeing the, the pod today. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I love uh, working for it, Craig, and and I'm grateful that you asked uh, for me to be on here and, and grateful too that the folks that are affiliated with Future Ready also asked for me to come and speak there a little bit as well, uh, because I I hope to honor the part that I get to play anytime I get space to share a little bit about what my experience have been. Keep up the great work. AndrewDEaston.com. AndrewDEaston.com. And do you want to tell how other people can get a hold of you, your social media? Yeah, I would say just you can reach out through social media for sure at Easton A1 uh, is my Twitter handle. 
uh, or go through the website and feel free to get in touch that way. I yeah love spending my my nine to five and more here with Nebraska's ESUCC. And I'm grateful too that I have a handful of days uh, where I get to take some personal time uh, and go support wherever and whenever uh, I can be of help with some of that personalized learning effort. Yeah, feel free to reach out. Thank you so much, Andrew. Keep up the great work. Hey, thanks, Craig. 